0: Because uh, even my dad said, hey, people might think you were making fun of him in a bad way. I hope that you hear my heart. I was just teasing him because of his bum leg. I would call that like a flat tire. But uh, he's in his 70s like my dad, and they're both going out to still preach the gospel. I just want to say that I love uh, Brother Scott Hinkle here. And if you see here, out here uh, yesterday at Ohio Park, we see a woman receiving deliverance. Somebody say amen to them. Amen. Amen. Uh, I came up to the park and I, I smelled the smell of barbecue and I heard the sounds of deliverance. It was an amazing thing that God was doing there. But there's someone here, uh, Iris is doing the praying, but there's someone here right behind the scenes that's always got Iris' back. Sister Evelyn, I just wanted to bless you today and just, you know, give you something special and just say thank you. Thank you for always serving the Lord. As I say, I run with the nameless and faceless because oftentimes, you know, people are looking uh, uh, for who—who's the main one, who's doing this, who's in charge. But I love that I run with the nameless and faceless. I was looking for—can uh, you put up the Monday night? I was looking for a brother that's always faithful out there, brother Israel. Juan is brother Israel here today because I wanted to give it up for him. Is he's—he's in the back? Okay, he's coming. He's always back there helping out with his kids. As he comes, let's give him a big hand clap, amen. Let's bless him. As he comes, he's not here yet. You're so, you're good, you're good. But as he comes, as he comes, we're just going to go like crazy for him, all right? Because this brother right here, Brother Israel, has been going out faithfully with one. And I know Jason and others have. This is always the downside of giving out gifts, you know. I mean, who who can you really give them all to? But I just felt that in my heart just to give some special encouragement because we don't take these lightly as a church to see who's being faithful in the service of the Lord and who's going out and, and making a difference even when nobody's looking. Can we give it up for Brother Israel? Come on! Amen, man of God. I just wanted to give you this book and say thank you. Thank you for being faithful on Monday nights. Thank you for that, man. I've got it. Amen. You know, when we had that video last week of the recap of Lollapalooza and, and hearing you cheer when the brothers and sisters came up, that's what reminds me of what heaven's going to be like because that's what we're going to talk about in heaven. We're going to talk about the souls that were saved, the disciples that were made. And then I've got some young preachers. Can you get the one with the children up there? These young girls preaching right here on the stage. I think I have one of them. They're actually on the stage because they took turns letting everybody who could hear on the microphone how powerful Jesus is. Did I give you one of those? Did I? Did I send you that picture? Oh, I didn't send it to you? Well... Oh, man, I forgot to send that one. Well, let's just give a hand clap for these young people. Amen. That's probably the, yeah, I sent the wrong one. But I saw, I saw Terrell's kids, my kids. If someone could just send Andrew one of those pictures, maybe I could stall long enough. I saw all of our children up there preaching the gospel. And I think we owe a lot of that, obviously, to Lauren and the parents. Let's give it up for Lauren working hard, making it happen. And feel free to interrupt me at any time and put up that picture. Open up your Bibles with me to John chapter 7, verse 53. Everybody say, Go and sin no more. Oh, amen, today is going to be a part one, and uh, second service is going to be a part two because uh, I've started a mini-series in second service on the identity of Christians, the identity of Christ, being perfect in Christ. So if you want to hear that today, make sure you stay after if you want to get double for your trouble coming out to church, or if you just want to check it out on the podcast. Now, before we get to John chapter 7, verse 53, I have to get into some textual criticism. Everybody say textual criticism. These are critics of the text. Now, these are not necessarily bad people. They're not critics in a bad way. I don't know if anybody's old enough to remember, uh, what was it, Ebel and Sisbert? I can't even remember Sisco Siskel and Ebert? Like, I was just trying to recall a name, and it was just like, I got to rewind that back and say what I came up with. So say it one more time for me. Siskel and Ebert, some of y'all remember them, okay, so I'm not the only person that's old enough to remember. You're looking at me like I'm crazy. Do you, do you even know these names, Siskel and Ebert? Well, this was back in the day before you could leave stars online and, and uh, rotten tomatoes and things like that. Oh, let's give it up for these young preachers right here. That's what I was talking about. Hey, Amen. That's, that's mine. I'm proud of them. And, of course, more prayers and things going on out there. Um, so, there, oh what, what, what did I miss here? Oh, look at this one. That's, that's the young one from the Rodriguez family right there. Amen. Praise God. He's coming up strong in the game. And he got suspenders. Man, we just glad for your baby. We just glad for your baby. All right. And, and Lawrence did an amazing job today. Okay, so these critics, Siskel and Ebert, you should tell you what they like and didn't like about movies. You know, it was just a thing back then. Now it's rotten tomatoes, now it's leave a review, now it's do a podcast, etc. So, a critic is not necessarily a bad thing. A critic can tell you something good. Siskel and Ebert could say, I like a, a movie. You know, I like, you know, they could give a, a, I think it was thumbs up. Was it thumbs up? They would give thumbs up. And so, when I say textual criticism, don't automatically shut down and go, all oh, those people are of the devil. They don't love Jesus. These are backslidden people. No, because I've been taught how to do textual criticism. I'm not good at it. I'm not an expert in it, but I understand it. I know how to go to experts and read what they do. Uh, I could never consider myself to be one unless i went to uh, further training. So I know them. I've hung out with them. Many of them are awesome men and women of God. Not all of them are backslidden. So I just want to be very clear. When we talk about textual criticism, we're not talking about somebody just necessarily with a critical spirit, a contrarian, someone trying to... For the negative in something. We're not talking about that. We're talking about people who take serious the text of the gospel. That's the first thing I want to clarify. The second thing is that I want to say is that on both sides of the debate, which we're about ready to get into, are godly men and women of God, are godly textual critics. There's going to be basically two ways to understand the notes that you see right here. This is in the NIV and in most modern translations, the ESV and so forth. Here Here's what it says. The earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses do not have John 7, 53 through 811. A few manuscripts include these verses, wholly or in part, after John 7:36, John 21, 25, Luke 21, 38, or Luke 24, 53. How many of you have seen that before in your Bible? Okay, so this is why we do this in the church. As a pastor, it is just not my job to get to the shouting part of this message. And by God's grace, wherever Daryl's at, can we get to some uh, uh, on the keyboard just a little bit, get that organ setting, just a little. No, 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 Not right now, because I got to do the scholar. I got to teach before I preach. But by God's grace, there's a go and sin no more. You've, you know, it's going to get, we're going to get there. And it is theatric. Let's just be honest. People try to say pastors play with emotions. Anytime you communicate, you're trying to get emotions out. But I want to be led of the Lord when I go there for a point, okay? Just like a singer hitting a certain note, a musician playing a certain thing. We understand that as pastors, so sometimes people try to put us down and say, all you're doing is trying to move emotions or be manipulative. No, we're trying to communicate. And there's a way in this culture that I can communicate what I'm excited about. I'm excited about you going and sinning no more. I'm excited about that. Now, if you were naive to think, whenever the organ starts and the preacher does X, Y, and Z, or whatever it would be in your culture, uh, if you're naive enough to think that's always the anointing? Well, then they could be doing that and teaching heresy. But that doesn't mean we leave aside our emotions and in our ways of communicating. That's an exciting way for me to communicate. Okay, so let, let's just go to that, and, and just well, we'll get to that in just a little bit. But let, let's stick here. So there are two sides to this debate. There is the majority text side, and then I'm going to summarize it. It's called eclectic, uh, eclectic text. But I'm just going to summarize it and call it the early text side. Somebody say majority text, early text. Thank you. So that's now going to be the, the, the division between good, godly people who are textual critics as they go through this. So some of my friends, like, uh, I wouldn't say like they're my friends, like I'm going to hang out with them, but they responded to me on Facebook. I've interacted with them. Dr. Craig Keener, Dr. Daniel Wallace, Dr. Michael Brown, they're all going to have different ways of looking at this, and they're still men and women of God. I preface that because there's one side of the debate that's considered the majority text, and then there's a sliver underneath them called King James only. And King James is a position, King James only-ism is a position. Brother, my mic's coming out. Can I get another one, please? Thank you. Maybe the battery's going dead. Um, Out of the majority text, there is a sliver of a group. That is called King James only. And those who are King James only, thank you, sir, are mostly the most naughty and they get the most attention. What I mean by naughty is they cause division. Like, if you're not reading the King James, you're not reading the Word of God, and then they become very sassy and very uh, derogatory towards other versions. The non-inspired version, NIV, that's what they'll say about it. You know, um, They'll actually burn the other Bibles. They don't think they're the Word of God. Some of them, I mean, you can't lump anybody all together on anything, but just speaking as an overview, if you've met a King James-only person, they didn't have any respect for your non-King James. Has anybody ever ran into any of them? Okay, a few of you. Well, I used to be one. Okay, so I used to be one. So I understand their thinking. So what I'm trying to do is make sure you don't fall into that ditch. Even if you believe In the majority text position and then a sliver out of the majority text position, the King James only position, if that's what you side with here in this church, I want you to feel comfortable and be able to still come to church with us who have a differing opinion and you don't excommunicate us out of something that's such a minor position, okay? Now, out of the other side, there is a snobbery in the eclectic early side. That's a sliver that gives that side a bad name because then they look down on anyone who doesn't know the original languages like they do, who doesn't know how to dissect the scriptures like they do, and I don't even really have um, names that I feel comfortable publicly saying here because most of you wouldn't even know them anyway, but these are the kind of backslidden in university settings that even doubt the word of God, Bart Ehrman would be one I'd feel the most comfortable with sharing here. Others would would still be Christians, but I don't want to introduce them to you in this setting, and and they would just lead you off down the rabbit trail of what this text means, what this, and, and basically uh, none of it lines up with historic Christianity. It's all their modern invention by their journey down the road of textual criticism. And by the way, maybe I'll just name one, Shelby Spong, these kind of New Testament people and Dominic Cross, I guess I'll just name a few, uh, they are pro-homosexual, pro these things, and by, by doing what they do, they make everything allowable. Okay, so, and you can see Dr. James White debate Shelby Spong and Bart Ehrman and others, and I think they get rocked. Our, our team wins. Okay, so let's not fall into the ditches of the two slivers, the King James only issue is going to put everybody down, or into this redaction criticism where we go back to the scripture, try to change everything to almost where it doesn't make any sense to, uh, to the historic position. It's almost like we needed you to explain everything because now uh, we can understand it and we wouldn't have understood it before. So let's avoid that. Now let's give everybody the benefit of the doubt. Here they are, majority text versus early text position. What do you think the majority text people are looking for when they're making a decision on a text viability? What do you think they're looking for? If they're a majority text position, what do you think? No, that would be the earliest one. Close. Dude, just, you're so close. But that was for the next question. So those who side with the majority, elders and deacons, welcome to answer, everybody. What do you think if I say, and I am one, a majority text person, what am I looking for for a text viability? That it's in the majority of text. Amen. I think that's what you were doing with this. You were saying it's in the majority, like you were doing like a, like a bucket and it was all going into the bucket. What's that? Okay, we'll move on. Don't want to put anybody on the spot, but I do want to make a little discussion there, because I want you all to think with this. If I am a majority text person, then I'm going to side on John chapter 8, this, this, person, this portion of scripture known as the uh, the woman caught in adultery or the pricope adulterarium, if you want to say it in Latin, you know. I think I messed up that somehow. But uh, what I'm looking for is when all the manuscripts are laid out on the table and now we're looking for that story, I'm looking for the majority to have the story. Is everybody tracking with me? Okay, that's what I do. That's what the King James does. That's what people who side with this position do. So I am a majority text advocate, and then I get a little bit more specific, and I go, I think the King James did the best with the majority, and I'll side with them. But the only difference about a King James only is between me and them is, I don't think only the King James can translate the majority text. I think there's modern versions that can translate the King, uh, the majority text like the New King James translated from the majority text the MEV tra- modern English version translated from the majority text so I prefer majority over King James but then when I'm looking at all the different majority translations I still go I think the King James does it best MEV is cool, New King James is cool, I get them, you know, I get what they're coming from but I'm still King James, does everybody get that? okay, now why don't you preach out the King James would be a great question, you hypocrite, you know, some King James only, so why, why don't you do that? Because I don't like how the King James reads in our, modern tra- in our modern culture. There are a lot of hard words to get through and phrasings of things, and it tongue ties me, and I get tongue tied a- a- enough by myself, let alone getting into a language format that is different. I love, and I know even out of my scholarly friends, they prefer the ESV or the New King James or the uh, NASB, all of these uh, above the NIV, but I love, just personally, I love the way the NIV reads. I just like it. It's very a modern feeling to how I read and understand things. But whenever I get to a place like this, I always clarify where I'm at. And then you have to make your decision because this could be a discussion among you uh, uh, here in the church. Okay, now, the early text people, Brother Michael, what do you think they're looking for in a passage to see if it's viable? Exactly. Is it in the earliest manuscripts? So now the, the uh, early text people, which they're called the eclectic people, they are now laying out all the manuscripts, and they don't count to see if there's the majority. What they're saying is, let me just go to my oldest and see if it's there. If it's not in the oldest, in our oldest manuscripts, in the ones that are from the hundreds, like 100, 200, 300, like if it's not there, we're not accepting it. We're just, it doesn't matter if it's in the majority after a certain point, we're not accepting it. Now, for many of you, when you hear this, it may be like convincing to see that position because, well, that's closest, that's earliest. But what you have to understand is that in the culture and climate that the the, the, the scriptures were written in, they were not easily preserved for long periods of time. So just because we found portions, and most of these are small portions of our New Testament, just because we found small portions without it doesn't mean it wasn't there because how did the majority get it? Maybe they got it through a transmission that was reliable, but those older ones didn't survive. So some of our oldest ones are like the size of a credit card, just little snippets of of books of the Bible. Now what they do here, because I'm a majority text person and I'm going to tell you my side, and then when we get into the text today, can you go to our notes too as well, please, brother. When we go into our text today, I want you to see I gave you two links that defends my position. I believe this statement is actually only partially true, first of all, and that is they say, well, it's not in the earliest, but what they don't say is that the earliest have the portions where it should be, and they have it marked off. So what they then go on to say here is a few of those earliest have this, but the deception is those few that have it are the only ones that have John 8. Because remember, all of our old manuscripts don't have all of the New Testament. So example, like if you have a credit card this size of the book of John, and that's our oldest manuscript is actually the book of John. They go by the names like P something, like papyrus, whatever. I think it's P71. Do you think this papyrus is going to have the woman caught in adultery in it? That's the size of a credit card. No, so by saying it's not in our earliest, when most of our earliest do not have even John 8 anywhere in it, because they're just portions, when they say then the next thing, well, a few manuscripts have this, what they're now not telling you is how to put that fact together. It's a half truth. Here's how it should be said the earliest manuscripts do not have it because they don't have the portions of John that would include it. But the ones that include this portion or have this portion have it noted that it should be there and or placed in different portions of Scripture. I hope that made sense. In other words, they need to be honest that out of even these ancient witnesses, it is noted that it is there and or it is in these other uh, locations. So we are actually upset And this is unfactual to what it's telling you. So we're upset that this is being uh, hoisted off to the believers like as if it's not even in the earliest. It is in the earliest, but it's in different places. And why is it there? Noted that it's there is because the early church had um, lectionary, or excuse me, they had liturgical readings of the scripture. And when they read portions of scripture, have you ever read, let me say like this, have you ever read the Bible in a year before? Have you ever done that? A couple of you. When you read the Bible in a year, doesn't it take portions of Scripture and then mix them up and then give them to you? So you get a portion of the old, you get a portion of the new, you get a Psalm, and you get a proverb, right? Right? During the time of the New Testament, a lot of our manuscripts are actually liturgical manuscripts. So some of our oldest aren't complete Bibles. They're actually their Sunday school lessons. And in their Sunday school lessons, they are dividing up Scripture and placing them in certain areas. And so this idea that John... Possibly wasn't legit because John would be found in Luke. Like, why would it be stuffed into Luke? Because Luke's reading would come with John's reading for the liturgy of that time. Does that make sense? This is literally literally the watered down version right now. I just want to be very honest with you. Everybody, track with me. I had two options of how I was going to do this. This is the watered down version. I am so serious to you right now, so I need you to track with me, okay, because I see some of you getting lost. Do you understand if you don't have a simple answer to this, you're going to get rocked by any cult that says your Bible has changed? Have you? Has anybody ever been witnessing and people say your Bible has changed? So I know we're in class, and I know some of you may be a little bit tired, but I need you to focus, okay? I need you to get this. The reason why we disagree as majority text people, even with this statement, is because it's not being honest. The earliest manuscripts have a majority witness to it, simply said. Does everybody get that? You guys got pins and paper. I hope you're writing that down. <laughs> Sometimes I was watching one preacher yesterday. He went on and told a story about him losing his luggage at least for 20 minutes. And I see people in the audience with pins and paper. I'm like, what do you write down when the guy's telling you a story about you know uh, him losing his luggage? And this is no offense to you guys, but I just want to be honest. I just gave you... Like a summary of a Bible class and nobody writes anything down in my church. So don't take it personal if you're not writing anything down that I'm getting on your case. But you have to understand this. Now the Lord's going to hold you accountable if somebody asks you about this and then you don't know it. Right? Because if you ain't writing it down and you're not paying attention to what I'm saying, how are you going to recall this? So I'm just going through this the water down way. This is the dumb down way. This is the water down way. This is not the more complex way. Trust me, if I was going to do it more complex, I'd be like the video. Do you have my notes, my brother? You, it's not coming up. Okay, just look for it and get it, and maybe uh, Lauren can help you back there because I want you to see our brother, Doctor. Um, oh, he's not a doctor yet, but James Snap. He takes the time to draw this out, to but would put many of you to sleep, and maybe not appropriate for a Sunday. But that would be the secondary version of this. This would be the more deeper version. So, in the earliest manuscripts, according to what I've just taught you, and you're having to take my word, I understand, in the earliest manuscripts, is it there? Yes, it is. I just told you it was. <laughs> Remember, I told you it was there. I'm helping you understand because it says here, a few manuscripts include this. So, is it there in the earliest? Yes, it is. So, how should this be phrased? How should this be phrased? Because it starts off saying the earliest manuscript don't have it, right? Like that's how it says it here. The earliest do not have the passage, right? Are you guys tracking with me? But then it goes on to say a few manuscripts include it. Well, if you're reading this now, you're confused a little bit, aren't you? Because are we talking about the few of the earliest or are we just talking about a few in general? Here's where it's deceptive. I know for a fact they can't be referring to the entire witness of the text because it's in the majority. It's in the majority. Okay? Go to Wikipedia for me, brother. Put in uh, woman caught in adultery. I will go a little bit deeper now. Maybe it would help some of you. Come on. Amen? I'm going to go a little deeper because I think it's going to help some of you. I'm going to show you this on Wikipedia. I don't always trust Wikipedia, but this is a way for me to bring it out because I always like to give you resources that you can go study. We have it in our textbook, but I was very impressed with Wikipedia because I know a lot of my uh, brothers that are involved in this want to make sure that the right information is out there. So they will go to Wikipedia to make sure that people who just, who just go there can find the good stuff. So go to a Woman Caught in Adultery in, in Wikipedia, and I want, to sh- I want you to see that this statement is at best naive, wrong, or at worst, deceptive. Deceptive. And so I want to show it to you once they get this up, as they're getting it up. Let me just ask you today, do you trust a Bible teacher? Amen. Amen. Okay, thank you, sir. Okay, uh, we're not looking at the picture. Go, let me just help you. Let's Google my brother. Oh, you know what? It actually is going to have it right up there. You see what it says? Jesus and the woman taken in adultery. There's going to be a link right here you can touch. Keep going down. Keep going down. Up a little bit. Yep, there you go. Touch that for me, please. Yep, touch it, and that's what we want right there. Okay, now go ahead and scroll up here with me. Go ahead and scroll up. I'm just going to help you out. We're going to go right here to the manuscript. Stop, 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 stop. Go down a little bit. Okay, okay. Let me just uh, go go up. Uh, let me just watch my hand, my brother. Watch my hand. Thank you. Go like this. There you go. There you go, my brother. Thank you. Here we go. Yeah, go up just a little bit more here. Go up here, go up. up. There we go. That's what I'm looking for. Manuscripts. The majority of Greek manuscripts include the pericope or part of it, right? Highlight that for me, please. Now, if Wikipedia said it, it must be true. And then make this like 10 times bigger so everybody can see it. I think a little bit more help will will, will, will take you a long way, okay, class? I want you all to get this because how many love this story? How many think we should defend the story? It's our Bible. Do you believe it? You should believe it. How many believed it before you came in here? Well, what would you have said to the Muslims standing outside there and said, look at your Bible. Your Bible told you not to even take it serious. You see what I'm saying? That's why you got to come to church on Sundays expecting to be trained and equipped to be going out to do works of service. The Bible says that's what we do. Amen? I'm here to train and equip you. The majority of Greek manuscripts include the pericope or at least part of it. Now go back to the, to the note that's in our text, please. Go back to it. See, it says the earliest manuscripts and many other ancient witnesses don't have it. They don't mention that it's in the majority, right? So it's naive, missing some information at best. But then it says a few manuscripts include it. Here's where I say I don't know their heart, but I know the statement is wrong. Because what do you mean a few? The statement of the fact is the majority have it. So you must be referring to a few in what category? The earliest. So you must now be backtracking into this statement because you couldn't be referring to manuscripts as a whole because the manuscript witness as a whole has it in the majority. Does everybody get that? I need you to get this. Because they're not telling you the whole truth. This is the way it should be written, and then you would look totally different at it. This is the way it should be written. The majority of manuscripts contain it, and in the earliest witnesses, it is there, but in various places. How many know that note would be much more helpful? The majority of manuscripts contain it, and the dispute is because the earliest have it in different places places. That specific sentence would clarify everything. So why aren't they telling it to you that way? Because I think they have a bias against it because of it not being in its normal place. Now, why isn't it in its normal place? Who remembers, starts with an L, ends with a Y. Why is it not in its normal place in the earliest of witnesses? Liturgy, man, come on, let's give Jesus a hand clap. <laughs> liturgy, the liturgy means it just happened to be moved for these purposes. It being moved doesn't it mean it's not legitimate. No, why would they first of all move something in Scripture to another place of Scripture unless they believed it was all Scripture? Did they move something from you know the works of uh, some other poet and put it into their Bible? No. If they're moving scriptures around, we have to ask why. And then we did ask why, and and everybody agrees. It's because they were making Bible studies. They were making liturgy. And so where we now come, and I want you to be with me, is to take this serious and then ask yourself this question. Now, I don't have to get any deeper than that, by the way. I think that was wonderful for us to start in that place, is that if God in his sovereignty allowed this to be in the majority of text, Why would he do that if it wasn't meant to be there? Why, for the last 2,000 years, has this been the majority text? Would God allow such a portion of Scripture to be brought in and it not be Scripture for so many years? Now, uh, did you guys find the notes? Okay, would you go ahead and bring my laptop then? Thank you. Uh, Sometimes we have complicated issues back there. They've been working on it. We're going to make sure we get my notes up as well. But I want everyone to get this. Now that I've given you my best answer to this, thank you. Now that I've given you my best answer to this, has anything changed about the Word of God as a whole? No. So can anyone say about the Word of God that this is now not true because of this situation we just talked about? No. No. This situation does not change anything about the Word of God. Now, somebody could say to themselves, well, you know what? I don't like that man can touch it and change it. Well, once again, how did you want the manuscripts to be handed down? Did you want dolphins to be handing it down? And, And just handing off a plate of Scripture to someone else? The idea that there wouldn't be textual criticism is a naive understanding. We as Christians are actually honest with our own text. So now if someone said to you, well, well, what about those who do believe it doesn't, be- like, like, like they're negative towards this. They don't like John 8. They don't think it's there. They're one of those Christians that you mentioned that are textual critics and they really love the Lord, but they don't think John 8 should be taught. In a verse-by-verse analysis of the Scripture, you, you should skip over it. Now, aren't they blaspheming God? No, and here's why. And here's why I'm not critical of them as they're being critical of the text, okay? Let me tell you why. It's because they're doing it with the greatest respect towards the Scripture. And here's how they have said it themselves, and here's how I would describe it. Dr. James White said it like this. Imagine you're putting together a puzzle that has a hundred pieces, but you have 104 pieces. Can you still put together the 100-piece puzzle? Yes, you're just going to have four left over. Nothing changed in the 100 pieces that you have. You just have extra. And that's the way they look at it, and they're trying to calm down the people accusing them of ripping out the word of God and making change. What they're trying to do is say, we're not Bart Ehrman, we're not Shelby Spong. As a matter of fact, James White debates those guys. He's trying to say, I'm not them. I'm just trying to be honest with the evidence that I see. Now, at the end of the day, is God going to send them to hell over them? No. God is, y'all like undecided. Well, maybe... You know, maybe they might go to hell over that. No. Some people, sometimes uh, they bring up revelation. If you take away from this book, you, the, the blessings will be taken away. If you add to it, m- more of the curses will be added to you. Very true that they may miss out on some blessings, but this has always been a part of the Christian and Jewish way of understanding the Scriptures. In other words, good people have always tried to do their best to preserve what was given to us. And so these men are not denying the Word of God. They're not denying uh, the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. What they are simply saying is this story could have been added and then moved around in the liturgy, and that's why it's not there in the earliest ones, and then one copy did have it, and that became the majority, and God allowed it because it doesn't contradict anything else in Scripture. You know, that would be their way of trying to explain it, and, and we think the best of them. I don't think they're full of the devil trying to send us to hell. What they're trying to do is help us guard the Scriptures, but at at the same time, I don't think it's being honest to what the actual evidence is. Everybody, say evidence. So when Christians debate the scripture, we don't do it just based on our feelings and our goosebumps. Well, I just get the goosebumps when I read this story about Jesus saying, where are your accusers? And I'm not going to stone you. And it has to be scripture. No, it doesn't. It could be incorrect. It could be a story told about him. It could have been somebody else's story, not John's. It could have been John's and somebody could have tried to put it in, but John didn't originally put it in. There's a lot of different uh, ways to look at this, even just thinking the best of the passage, but simply now in review. I am a majority text preacher. I believe that the majority text symbolizes and shows to us God's preservation of the text. That what he put his hand on, that which was read by the majority and preserved for 2,000 years, wasn't by accident, but was sovereignly done by the Lord. As well as, I have that same respect for that part of the uh, majority text, text tradition, that the King James, which is still to this day the most read English version of the Bible and the most published has been God's way of preserving it so that when you have the King James, you know you have the Word of God, where sometimes, to give credit to those who are suspicious of new versions, there could be little sneaky stuff going on as time goes on to make allowances for different false doctrines. I do agree that people may want to get their hands on it and and try to come up with their own translation like Jehovah Witnesses, Mormons, and so forth. So I'm thankful that we can point to something and in the English language like the King James and go, this has been tested and tried by English speakers for almost the last 500 plus years. Amen? Like the Wesleys use this. The Church of England used this. The Puritans used this. Like people from various denominations used those scriptures and God was able to bless them. Now, are you ready for the scripture? Amen. Hopefully it has been defended well in your hearing today because I owed that to you. Let's look at verse 53 and onward. I'm going to read it all together, and then we'll get Daryl back up, and you guys won't have to worry. There will not be a test, okay? But thank you for those who wrote this down and who are prepared and ready to defend it. Then they all went home. This was after Jesus was at the festival. He debated with the Pharisees. They wanted to kill him, and they all went home. 8, verse 1. But Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. At dawn he appeared again in the temple courts, where all the people gathered around him, and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. Now, notice it. That is a fact. Nobody's doubting that. In the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. Now, what say you? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. Verse 9, at this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left, with the woman still standing there. Jesus straightened up and asked her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, no one, sir then neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared in the King James, let's read it together. Oh, you don't have the King James, but it's in my notes. Go and sin no more. Everybody say go and sin no more. One more time. Go and sin no more. Amen. Beautiful story. Most people don't read it to the end though, the go and sin no more part, right? They only like the part that deals with no judgment coming their way. But let's talk about that for a few moments before we get to that good part at the end. Go to Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. Where Were the Jews right to believe that a woman caught in adultery should be stoned? Were they right for that? Yes. That's godly to believe that in that context. We no longer live under the old covenant, but it was right for them to believe that. The new covenant had not come. And remember, the law of Moses dealt with not only the moral issues, but it dealt with civil issues. It dealt with religious issues. So you can look at the law in these various portions that it would address those issues. So the law had portions of judgment upon moral sins. Notice this in the scripture. This is Leviticus. They were right to bring this up. Okay, my brothers, whenever you're ready, thank you. Leviticus chapter 20, verse 10. If a man commits adultery with another man's wife, with the wife of his neighbor, both the adulterer and the adulteress are to be what? Put to death. Now, what part are we missing in this story of the woman caught in adultery? What part are we missing here? Where's the man? Amen. All the sisters, where's that man? These... Dirty guys pointing out the woman, but not the man. She didn't sin adultery all by herself. That man should be there too. So we first of all see that they're partially right. A woman should be stoned if she's caught in adultery, but so should the man. Where's the man at? And so we deal with this in our culture even to this day, and I'm 100% agreement that there is more shame towards the women who are sexually promiscuous than there is towards the men, and that should not be so. There should be an equal offense that Christians give towards this world, towards men's behavior of sin and women, because I can tell you right now, neither wants us to preach to them the morality of the word. But if we're going to focus on this issue, and I want to encourage everyone here to do it because it's good to preach the word, make sure you focus on what men do as well. And I hope that you have heard that here, that there is no man getting off uh, the, 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 the pornography thing or the violating women's honor thing while women are just looked at as spoiled goods. Both are sinful in God's eyes and both need to be repented of. And then here's the good news. Both can be cleansed, male and female, and become born again virgins. Amen? Amen. I claimed that for myself after I got saved. Anybody wants that? That's yours in Jesus' name. And I'll tell you what, God did not disappoint me on my wedding night. I'll just tell you right now. Even though the action probably was the same in similar ways before I was saved, there was a blessing upon the action with the wedding ring and the covenant of marriage. Can I get an amen from anybody who can relate? So when we see this command, their portion of bringing the woman there was right. The portion where they were wrong is they didn't bring the man. Now go back to the text, please, in John chapter 8. What we clearly see is they want to trap Jesus. Well, why is this a trap for Jesus? This is a trap because John 18, 31, go there quickly. They are going to confess freely they know they can't kill anybody. The Jews did not have the authority to bring the death penalty. So now the reason why this is a trap is because if Jesus sides with the law and says she must be stoned, he has now made himself an enemy of Rome. Does everybody get that? If she needs to be stoned, Jesus is an enemy of Rome. But then if she says, uh, Jesus says she doesn't need to be stoned, now he's an enemy of Moses. Because Moses said she's supposed to stone him. But now hold on. Let's make sure we hold their feet accountable. How many adultering people have you all met, Pharisees? Why aren't you stoning them? Why haven't you been stoning them, male and female? Because they didn't want to become an enemy of Rome, they had been compromising on their laws. They had not been enacting the judgments of them. And there can actually be a good argument made from the prophets that during their time of occupation in pagan, uh, under pagan rulership that they weren't expected to either. But once again, if it was so important to them to see the judicial action of the law done, why didn't they do it for the last 20 years? How come they didn't do it before Jesus came on the scene? Why didn't they do it the day before or take that woman and do it themselves? And then ask Jesus the question because they know they are not doing it. They expected Jesus to do something they themselves were not doing. They weren't standing by the law, and they were certainly playing nice with Rome. They were not going to lose Rome as their ally. Many of these leaders at this time had become compromised with the leaven of politics. They wanted to fit in with the government of their day, which was wicked and was against the things of God. Now, notice what they say here when dealing with Jesus towards the end of his ministry, what leads uh, them to even come to Pilate. Why aren't they just doing this themselves, uh, you know, enacting the death penalty? Notice what Pilate says. Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to what? execute anyone. See, they wanted to execute Jesus, and they had no right to do so. Now, sometimes people try to say, well, there's a contradiction in our scripture that then eventually they stoned Stephen. So what changed? Well, what I think changed was they saw how Rome was now willing to kill a a, a person on no basis of breaking the Roman law, and they now were going to say, well, I guess we can get away with it then. But up until this point, they did not want to cross that line. And remember, even Pilate said, I have no reason in my own law to kill him. So they got bold after this and started taking things into their own hands, even making a vow not to eat until they killed Paul. You all remember that? And then they stoned Stephen just out of sheer, just pushing their boundaries. And you can see that even in our culture, pushing the boundaries. As the law doesn't back up really what they say, allows criminals to run more freely, the criminals will keep taking those things to the extent. So at this point, they're being honest, and that is the truth. They had no right to execute anyone. So going back to John chapter 8. They asked Jesus with this poor woman here, what should we do? Shouldn't we stone her? That's what the law says. But once again, where is the man? They're not doing exactly what the law says. And then once again, uh, to another point, why haven't you been stoning? Because you know very well you don't have the power, and God has given us an allowance to not do that, Jesus could have answered. But I love Jesus. He's even smarter than the best of our lawyers today. Jesus starts to write on the ground. Now, there have been many preachers who have taken time to think about what Jesus wrote on the ground. I'll give you their best ones, okay? But I don't know which one it is. Some of the preachers believe that Jesus began to write down on the ground the names of the ones who have slept with her. And those men were some of the ones trying to get her stoned. So they were, he was writing on the ground, Bob, Mike, all of these different names, Because as you go into the story, it says that the older ones left first and to the younger ones were left. So he started with the old ones who had been with this woman first, the older ones down to the younger ones. That's what some preachers have said. I can preach though, right? Because God was calling them out. Uh, The next thing that people have said is that Jesus was simply just writing the Ten Commandments. In other words, he was showing them by just writing down, Thou shalt have no other gods before me, you know, all of these different commands, that he was now showing them the law, and it was meant to be a reflection to them. And the oldest, who had been around the longest, knew they were the most guilty of the laws being broke. They didn't need the list to keep going. They were able to go. And then last but not least is the idea that Jesus was writing down things that would have to do with grace and forgiveness and love. Maybe he drew a heart, and the stubborn old men were the first ones to go and go, we're not having nothing to do with that. You know, maybe he was like, I heart this woman, you know what I'm saying? (laughs) doing the heart. I mean, we don't know. He could have become an artist at that point. This obviously is the, um, the fringe idea of what's going on, but it could be a possibility. He started drawing or making pictures or describing something to do with grace. Maybe the psalmist has said, how blessed is the man who God does not hold a sin against him, you know, does not impute it against him. And so those kinds of things were being written. We don't know what he was writing, but we know he was writing. Some people have tried to charge Jesus with being illiterate. He wasn't. He continually says, it is written Therefore, he has had to have known what was written. He also went to the temple, read the scroll that was given to him, Isaiah 61, and he could write with his finger. So please don't have anyone accuse our Jesus of not being able to read and write. Though we don't know what he's writing down, we do see in the text that the people begin to leave oldest to youngest. And I think all of the stories that I have heard, and we're all doing our best here to, to give you an interpretation, is that I do believe it was the old feeling the most convicted. I believe that they knew they were the most wrong. That they knew the trick they were playing, and the youngest wanted to hold out because they were being rebellious and stubborn with that kind of teenage pride or young adult pride. They didn't want to admit that that, that it was over, that they had lost this battle. They were staying there to the bitter end. Um, maybe someone could say the youngest were actually staying there because they were possibly going to change, and the oldest were the first ones to say, I'm not going to change, you can't teach an old dog new tricks, and they'll think of the younger more in a better light, that maybe they were this close to being convicted, like the young rich ruler. But I don't necessarily see that here because there's no mention of any of them in their staying becoming more merciful. I think it's actually supposed to give us the idea that they're becoming more prideful and that they're all leaving in disgust. The next part that I want us to see is that God had no issue with righteous judges. Go with me now to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18. The men that were there, if they were truly the leaders of Israel, were supposed to be judges over this situation. But they were supposed to be judges who wanted righteousness and justice, not to use judgment as a way to put others down or to trick them. They were not doing their job good as judges. Because some people read this context and they go, well, if we're all without sin, then no one, you know, if we all have sin, then no one can throw a stone. But don't we find in the Old Testament some stones being thrown? You know, why didn't Achan say back to them at that time, hey, if any of y'all is perfect, then you could throw a stone, but none of y'all can throw a stone at me because y'all are imperfect. As a rock hits his face. Because what they could have answered back is, I don't need to be perfect. I just need to be forgiven and righteous right now. Come on. I don't need to be without sin. I just need to have my sin dealt with and to have God's word with me, and I can throw this stone. So sometimes people make it out to be like the entire system of stoning was wrong. The entire system of judges is wrong. But it's not. Look at the scriptures. Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 18, a point. Nice people who are just going to hang out and tell you what you want to hear. What does it say? Appoint who? Appoint judges. Well, don't you judge nobody. Well, I guess we have to get rid of the book of judges then. There's an entire book of people judging people. And then there's the command to appoint judges. And how many are glad that we have judges in our culture? They may not always be good ones, but we're glad they're there. And we need to pray for good judges. So the Bible says appoint judges. Those are people who can know the difference between good and evil. And officials for each of your tribes in every town, the Lord your God is giving you. So if they were in that town, they were supposed to have judges. And they shall judge the people what? Fairly. Do not pervert justice or show partiality. Do not accept a bribe, for a bribe blinds the eyes of the wise and twists the words of the innocent. Follow justice and justice alone so that you may live and possess the land the Lord your God is giving you. Somebody say, godly judges. Thank you. So when we go back to the text, are we now getting an example here of not to judge? Is it something that now in the church we're never going to do? No, go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. When we go to 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the New Testament example continues on with godly judges. The only thing is now we're not enacting death penalties, but we are enacting our judgments upon those in the church. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Start around verse 9, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who we know are immoral or the greedy, the swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. How many know there's a lot of sinners around? Amen. But this is what he says in verse 11. But now I'm writing to you that you must not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister, but is sexually immoral, greedy, idolater, slanderer, drunkard, swindler, do not even eat with such people. Now notice why he says this is an appropriate thing to do. Look at verse 12. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church are you not to judge those inside the church? God will judge those outside, speaking about judgment day, but now we're making judgments, expel the wicked person from among you. So does John chapter 8 now eliminate the role of judges in the Christian church? No, it actually shows them how to judge. Just like we learned before, when Jesus said, don't judge, lest she be judged, that doesn't mean we're not going to make any judgment. It's that we're not going to make judgments based on injustice, hypocrisy, hypocrisy, or our own favoritism. We're going to judge, as the Bible goes on to say, those who are dogs or swine based on the word of the Lord. And the same thing is here. Is it wrong to point out a woman in adultery? Is it wrong to point out somebody that's greedy or a swindler or an idolater or a slanderer or a swindler? Is it wrong to point those things out in our brother or sister? Absolutely not. We're supposed to take the plank out of our own eye so that we can see the specks of these things in our brother and sister's eye. Amen? But how are we to judge? We are to judge as those who have been given grace and mercy. When we go back to this text, how does Jesus judge her? Does Jesus approve of her lifestyle? Going back to John chapter 8, please. Does Jesus approve of it? No. What Jesus does is forgive her. Does forgiveness and not condemning someone mean that you want them to continue to live the way they're living? If you and I have been caught speeding and the police give us a warning, is that his way or her way of saying, please continue to speed? No, it's them saying, here is a warning so that now you don't go on speeding. And how many are praying that you can listen to those warnings? Can I hear an amen from somebody driving fast in traffic in church? Amen. We got to listen to those warnings because then after that, it's our fault. Here Jesus says to her, where are your uh, condemners? Where are your accusers? And she says, there's no one, Lord, because no one can give that judgment in that way. No one could. Why couldn't they? Because by this time, they had lost the right of a nation. They are no longer just judges. And there's no reason to bring a death penalty just to the woman. Jesus is saying, we're going to do things differently now. There will not be a judgment of death that is going to be incorporated with the government. There is not going to be a partial judgment of just a woman, but now there is going to be a forgiveness that will bring about transformation so both women and men can be changed to do what? Go and sin no more. Daryl, would you come on up to the good part? Because Jesus is offering us a salvation, not a condemnation. Do not take the offer today of Jesus' salvation as Jesus attempting to give you permission to keep sinning. Look at Jesus' non-condemnation as an opportunity to live free from sin. How many here today are glad that Jesus doesn't condemn you, but he sets you free to live free? Amen, because what we're going to learn in the rest of John chapter 8 is those who know the truth, the truth will set them free. And the one the sun sets free is free indeed. Hey, give me that organ. That's what we get from the scriptures is that when Jesus forgives you. Okay, you getting it? Okay, you just, just let me know when you're ready because I got backup in the back there. Come on. Come on, I'm going to give you one more try, but no pressure. When you look at the scripture, I need the organ. Can you help him find the organ for me, brother, so we can have some fun in closing out? Yes, Lord. When the Bible says that her condemners were no longer there, it doesn't mean on judgment day God wouldn't have condemned her. Does everybody get that? Because God can condemn. She could have been condemned if she died before her salvation. So Jesus giving her the opportunity of salvation isn't for her to continue in her sins. Go quickly to Romans chapter 8, and then we'll see if I can preach it a little bit. In Romans chapter 8, it talks about in verse 1, there being no more condemnation. But where does the freedom from condemnation come? Where does that come from? That comes from those in Christ. You see... Jesus is not saying to this woman, I approve of your sin. That's what our culture hears when they look at that text. Oh, you know, he was without sin, throw the first stone. And what they're trying to say is that Jesus is saying, I'm cool with it. None of y'all can throw stones at me. And no, we are supposed to preach against what they're doing. We are to pick up the word of God like a stone and throw it at them. But we're not doing it for condemnation. We're doing it for salvation. What we throw at them, what we give to them is the word of God. Because in Christ, amen. Thank you, my brother. We're getting close. We just went to the haunted house. Or we're at the ninth round or whatever round of baseball. Try it one more time. So I'm going to get a rhythm, and you're just going to find two notes, baby. Okay, he says he got me. He says he got me. Y'all heard him. There is no condemnation for those in Christ. So what are we giving to people, the word of God? What are we throwing at sinners today when they're passing by? Are we throwing the stones of condemnation? No, we're throwing the rocks of salvation to build up their lives. Because he said, if you hear these words of mine and you put them into practice, then you are a wise man who builds his house on the what? The rock. So we're not throwing condemnation. We're throwing out the word of God, which is a true foundation. We're giving people the opportunity to come out of the life of sin. So no one should ever use that story against you preaching about their sin. If they're doing that, you need to bring them back through the story. Because the story doesn't end with the woman still in sin being approved. When Jesus. Okay, do you want to help him? I'll give you permission. Let's give it up for everybody to go help him. Now just watch this brother right here. Watch this book because he goes. It's not a. It's not a. Sl-. There it is. When Jesus saw the woman, just a little bit quicker. When Jesus saw the woman, he didn't leave her as she was. He picked her up, turned her around, gave her salvation. She wasn't going to be the same again. Hallelujah! We tried to bring it in today. We tried to bring it. I don't know about you but I'm glad when he saw me he didn't condemn me he didn't let him throw stones at me I'm glad he picked me up and he told me I got a new life for you I'm glad he didn't leave me there cause if you knew who I used to be you might have wanted to stone me too but he saw in me who he wanted me to be he saw in me saint of God I wasn't going to be a sinner no more I was going to go and sin no more hallelujah would you stand up today Woo, give it up for Jesus just between you and I I like it a lot a little bit deeper just a little bit faster turn, up. turn up. deeper not higher deeper more bassy Woo! Listen, God could have let you be condemned. There you go. And it's, it's just a quick one for me. When God saw this woman, in the, when Jesus, God in the flesh, saw this woman, he could have left her to condemnation. And he could have left her in his sin, uh, her sin. He doesn't do either. He doesn't do either. Everyone has got to get that. He doesn't do either. He doesn't say, What's well, all condemn her and stone her. He doesn't do that. And he doesn't say, well, what she does doesn't matter. Just keep on doing you. Be you, girl. Live your truth. No, it's neither one of those. It's grace and truth. He brought grace and truth that's what the bible says jesus came in john chapter one full of grace and full of what truth revealing the father's glory he was showing this woman that yes it is true you are a sinner deserving the wrath of god you should be condemned that is true but there's grace Hallelujah! Grace said, not yet wrath. Grace said, hold up judgment. There's something else coming. Salvation! Salvation was coming. Salvation was coming. And so I believe on the day of judgment, no one will be without excuse. All of us today are like that woman now being in the point of decision. What will we do? Will we take the forgiveness of God as an opportunity to keep on sinning? Or will we take it now to go and sin no more? Because I don't want to sin anymore. Hallelujah. I don't want to be a perverted person anymore. Instead of perversion, I want purity. Amen. Instead of anger and violence, I want peace and joy. Instead of greed, I want generosity. And Instead of believing a lie, I want the truth. And so I believe God is saying to each one of us here, neither do I condemn thee. I didn't come to condemn thee, but I came to give you salvation that you would sin no more. There is freedom. and altar workers, would you come please? Would someone here today make this opportunity and a decision in their life to go and sin no more? part two is going to be today in second service because I'm doing a mini series on your identity in Christ. Like I said, if you can't stay, I understand. Otherwise, uh, get it on on a podcast or something because I want to continue to teach how to live free from our sins, free from your sins, free from uh, the temptation that feels so real. Someone today needs to walk out of here going and sinning no more. Today needs to be your first day of deliverance. Today needs to be your first day of freedom and your last day of that sin. The last day that you smoked was the last time you did. The last time that you cussed was the last time that you did. The last time you'll ever be with the the person you're not married to in that way was the last time you did. There has to be a day where your go starts now. I can just imagine what the privilege was for that woman to be able to say, this is my day, to no longer be a sinner anymore. Can I say it like this? To be a hoe, no more. Can I? Can I I might as well. Y'all get it? I got the guayla saying I'm okay. Amen. Seriously, you don't have to be a hoe, no more. And all of us have been like a male and female. You don't have to be that way. Let me show them to them quick, James chapter 3 in closing, second closing. This is good because I don't want to just play on that word to make us feel like I'm just trying to be slick with the ho, no mo. I want, I want you to see this real quick. Go on down chapter 3, please. Keep on going. It might be in chapter 4. Yeah, it's going to be in chapter, James chapter 4. Right there. Go up, please. Go up. Look at what it says, verse 4. You adulterous people. Come on. I know it sounds funny when I say it in that kind of English slang, but everybody get this. The Bible says James was speaking to the church that wasn't wanting to live right and was saying, you're an adulterous people. So in other words, people in this church, that's why I want to take it serious just for a few more moments. You could be just like that woman, an adulterous person, because don't you know that friendship with the world is at enmity with God. It's setting you against God. Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think Scripture says without reason that he jealously longs for the spirit that he has caused to dwell in us? That's why not all jealousy is wrong. God even has godly jealousy for us. That word just means strong longing. If my wife started having an affair, I would be jealous of that. That is not a wrong emotion to have. Come on, somebody. I would not want my wife to be in another man's arms. Now, I couldn't let that jealousy bring me into other sins, but jealousy is one of those words that we learn throughout scriptures that can be used in two different ways. How does God have a jealousy? How did Paul have a jealousy for his church? You know, this kind of a jealousy is a strong longing for someone to do the right thing. And God is looking at us saying, do the right thing. I'm not condemning you. I'm not putting you in hell yet. You have time. Go and sin no more. So today, before we dismiss, can we just close in prayer? Right now, every head bowed and eyes closed. Would you look at your life, brothers and sisters, even visitors? Are you right with the God of the Bible? Because if you're not, you need to repent today. You may be that adulterous person. Even if you've been saved before, you might be a backslider. Do not leave out here committing adultery on God, being a friend of the world. Get rid of all of the sin. Ask the Lord to show you right now. Father, I ask you to show us our hearts. Reveal to us who we are, starting with me. If there's anything unclean in me, God, get it out. I don't want to be an adulterer. I know you're not condemning me, but I also know you're not approving of sin. So, Lord, give me the grace and truth that I need right now. If you're here today and you want to be set free from sin, just raise up your hands right now and say, set me free, Lord. I believe you are who you say you are. You're my Lord and Savior. Even if you're already a Christian, confess Christ as Lord even right now, and then we'll dismiss and you can come get prayer. But just on your own, if you want freedom from sin, just say, I believe in you, Jesus. You're my Lord and Savior, and I want to be free from every sin right now, everything that hinders me right now. Right now, right now, I pray freedom for every person raising their hands. In the name of Jesus, may you never go back to that sin. May you never be the same again in the name of Jesus. May you go today from this place and sin no more. What if we do sin, pastor? Well, repent and mean it from your heart. Don't continue in sin so that grace can abound. Because of grace, live without that sin. And watch how God will make you into his person today to live holy in that area. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Can you bless the Lord's saints? Come on, God bless you. You got some teaching and preaching. We're going to dismiss you now out the side door here as second service comes in. But if you want to stay for prayer, please come on up.